Now I'll be reading from John 14, 1 to 14. It's page 901 in the Pew Bible. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it, it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of God. Thank you, Mel. I think each of us have places in our hearts that are really difficult to be spoken to where words of comfort seem unable to penetrate our troubled, complex emotions and feelings. So consider the following three scenarios. One features abandonment, one fear, and one shame. This is a true story. My friend John is a newly single father. After a long battle with depression, his wife committed suicide just last week. His, his future, his young kid's future, changed in a moment's time. He and his wife are former colleagues of mine. They were friends, wonderful people, but now she's gone, and he is left to pick up the pieces. What would you say to John in those moments that he is discovering his wife is gone? He feels abandoned by his wife. He might feel abandoned by God. Or consider Elizabeth Cherney's ministry to the women in prison. I was reading her most recent prayer letter, and she included some prayer requests from the women that she serves there at the prison. Almost all of them were self-admittedly aching to be with their kids, concerned about the welfare of their kids. I'm sure their hearts were racked with fear about who's going to care for their babies when they're unable to be present. Fear. Shame. Consider another pastor friend of mine who was just picked up by the cops a couple of weeks ago in a prostitution sting. What do you tell him who's feeling deep pangs of guilt 
the shame of defiling the name of Jesus and his family? What do you say to the man whose very name is synonymous with shame? What do you say to the father who feels abandoned, the mommy who feels fear, and the pastor who is racked with guilt and shame? Well, I think these are three very real emotions that the disciples were dealing with in light of the events that went on in John chapters 13 and 14. They felt abandoned because Jesus had just said that he was about to head into a place that they couldn't follow. They felt fear because in those very moments, they were beginning to learn that Judas was selling them out to the religious authorities. Were their lives in danger? Were their families' lives in danger? And especially Peter, I think, was feeling a large degree of shame. He just boldly proclaimed his love for Jesus. I will follow you anywhere, Jesus. Even into death, to which Jesus was like, bro, you ain't even going to make it through the night. So what does Jesus speak into this situation? What words does he say to this motley crew? What words of hope and light does he speak? Six unforgettable words. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. There's a dark night of soul coming for you and for me. Maybe you're experiencing it now. Maybe you already have. But we need to begin readying ourselves for that season of darkness that we will be plunged into because of the darkness and brokenness of this world. And I think Jesus is preparing us now for those moments then through John chapter 14. Why should the disciples and why should we not be troubled? Jesus gives us a few reasons. First here is that Jesus' future provision sustains us through current failure and doubt. Jesus' future provision sustains us right now through current failure and doubt. So I want us to remember, maybe you're not uh, aware of this, but the chapter and verse divisions that you see in your Bibles, those were not a part of the original writings of the New Testament or the Old Testament. The end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14, they actually belong together. Their themes are stitched together by the Savior himself right here. Your trouble and God's comfort can be stitched together too. Look, the shameful rejection of chapter 13, verse 38, is providentially paired with the sovereign comforts of chapter 14 and verse 1. These two themes belong together. So look at all the failure and doubt by the disciples here. It's prevalent. Chapter 13, verse 30, Judas, you're selling me out. Chapter 13, verse 38, Peter, you're turning your back on me. Not once, not twice, three times. Thomas, you're straight up clueless. Chapter 14, verse 5, Philip, you're still doubting my identity after all this stuff that I've done? Chapter 14, verse 8, but Jesus says, friends, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, if this seems like a request from Jesus, it's not. It's hard to see the forcefulness of it on the surface here, but the verb tense is imperative. It's a command. And often, if you're like me, we tend to prickle at commands. But this is like the command to finish your steak or to finish your cake. Wait, you're going to make me? Okay, all right, I'll do it. You may not let your hearts be troubled. This is a kind command. And why should we not be troubled? Well, verse 2, 
because my father has a house that is big enough for deniers, big enough for rejectors, big enough for the ashamed and the sad and the fearful and the abandoned. Do you see it there? Look in there in verse 2 of chapter 14. My father has many rooms in his house. The father's house is big enough for you. In the ancient Middle East, their practice was different than it is for us today. If we, if we marry, we usually move out of our parents' house and into our own house, but not so for the culture that Jesus was speaking these words into. Uh, the culture that he was speaking these words into uh, featured uh, families that would not move out of their parents' house, but would build on to their parents' house. And so uh, whether it was a house or a tent, they would always just build an extra room onto it so that the, new, that the new family, the newly married family, could stay close to the parents. And so this is what Jesus is saying. There, there's always more room. We'll just build an extra room onto the house. In my father's house, there are many rooms, enough room for you and for me. It isn't going to be cramped. And then look later in verse 2. Not only are there enough rooms, the rooms are actually tailor-made for you and for me. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now maybe, maybe you've been to someone's house who has smoked meat for you. I mean, that is an all-day affair. Maybe you're not aware of this if you've only ever been the recipient of smoked meat. Um, but those who have done that for you have worked all day long, tirelessly for you. They woke up early. They tended to those succulent meats for many, many hours in preparation for you, for that moment that you would walk in the front door and smell that smoke. It kind of makes you feel special if you get to show up for something like that. I won't tell you who in the church provides these kinds of services because I don't want you to feel bad but it's Travis, Justin, and Brandon, okay? Um, the point is, though, that they've gone to a lot of trouble to serve you, with you in mind. Provide for you, not just bread and water, but the good stuff. That's an indication that they love and appreciate you as a person. And it's the same for your Savior. He's gonna prepare a place for you. It's an indication of forethought, of care, for you as an individual. And I think Jesus saves the best for last here. End of verse 3. He's doing all of this so that his disciples and ultimately you and me, so that all of us can be with him. Remember, these disciples are afraid and they're confused at what Jesus has just said. Remember, they're laying around the table. They're still laying around the table, even in uh, chapter 14 here. Uh, and Jesus has just said, look, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't come. You cannot follow me. They hadn't not been with him for three years. What were they going to do now? What do, we, what do we do with ourselves? There's this sadness in this hole developing in their hearts. And Jesus is speaking into that and saying, I'm going to come back for you, and I'm going to bring you to me. Our distance is only for a season, and then we're going to be back together. Remember who he's saying this to. Let's not forget. A room full of guys who have failed him, deeply wounded him relationally. And they're about to fail him in deeply painful ways, even more painful ways, as his friends. So he's setting his love on them, not according to what they've done or what they're going to do, but according to his own merciful heart. So hear this this morning. Let your heart hear and absorb these words. Jesus doesn't love you because you've pulled yourself up out of the muck. 
He doesn't love you because you've completed some kind of program that weaned you from alcohol or drug or pornography addiction. He doesn't love you because nine times out of ten you're here on a Sunday. He doesn't love you because you're faithful to your spouse. He loves you. This is hard to hear. He loves you in spite of you. He loves me in spite of me. I mean, let's face it. We're a lot more like Peter than we give ourselves credit for. He was a classic overpromiser, underdeliverer. Peter, man, he, he overpromises and underdelivers like it's his job. Jesus, I will follow you into the jaws of death, except for maybe I'll act like we've never met for just a little while later on tonight. And then right into this failure, Pete, Peter rejecting his friend, Jesus, his Savior. Jesus speaks these words, let not your heart be troubled. He speaks this into the lives of all of us who have said, that's it, I'm never clicking on one of those images again. I won't do it. Days later, click. He speaks let, these words, let not your heart be troubled, into this situation. Those of us who have said, that's it, I am never yelling at my kids again. I'm going to calmly parent them for the next two decades without raising my voice even one single time. Seconds later, what do you think you're doing? Right? That's me. I probably scared you with that. The mic's hot this morning. I apologize. Or how about those of us who have said, that's it. I'm never taking another drink in my life again. That stuff controls me in an unhelpful, unhealthy way. That evening, sip. That's it. I'm never giving in to fear, depression, anxiety. That's it. That's it. That's it. Peter and all the rest of us fragile saints who follow Jesus so imperfectly. Don't let unholy fear rise in your heart in light of those failures. Trust God. By faith in his son, you have a place in his house. In my father's house, there are many rooms, enough rooms for you. And this isn't just like an emotional game that Jesus is playing here. He's not like, oh, don't feel so bad, buddy. It's going to be okay. Jesus doesn't operate in the world of half-baked solutions to deep, deep problems. Let not your hearts be troubled isn't a band-aid. It's a real response to real problems because a real solution is readily available. So hear this. Our hearts can remain untroubled in the wake of our mess because our place with the Father isn't determined by our performance for the Father. Our hearts can remain untroubled in the wake of our mess because our place with the Father isn't determined by our performance for the Father. We can know this because of when Jesus speaks these words of comfort. He calmly shoves them right into the jaws of the disciples' shame and right into ours. So in, in real life the other night, this is the way it looked in my own home. It looked like me overreacting to my girls in a sinful way. I got angry. And it looked like me leaving the room, feeling sad, feeling shame, feeling like I'm ruining my kids. It looked like me burying my face in my hands in my room and saying, I'm sorry. God, I am sorry. And then hearing the reassuring voice of my Savior through this text. You're mine. I'm getting your room ready for you right now. It's going to be great. Believe me, trust in me is enough to inoculate your biggest trouble. 
walk back into the dining room, not in shame, but in forgiveness, ready to serve your family, even in the wake of your mess. You have a place with me. Go serve your family. That was the gospel from specifically the, the angle of John 14 working itself out in my heart this week. That was future hope penetrating my present trouble and tra- transforming my life from the inside out. Future hope has to penetrate our current trouble and transform us from the inside out. So the way to have an untroubled heart in real life is simple. It's just to believe God, to believe his promises here in John 14. We have troubled souls because we don't believe Jesus. We don't believe him when he says, I want you. Come on over to my place. I've got it all set up for you. I've secured this spot for you. And you had nothing to do with it. If you're like me, when you do well, my heart leaps. When we fail, our hearts are troubled. But here's the thing about that vicious cycle that we're in. The gospel frees us from it because our emotions no longer need to ebb and flow by our performance because our emotions and affections can be hitched to the performance of another who never failed. That is why in the midst of our abandonment, in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our shame that we feel for something we've done, Jesus can whisper, let not your heart be troubled. And it's legitimate because every obstacle between you and the Father's house has been removed. Every obstacle between you and getting to the Father's house, to your room in the Father's house, it's been obliterated at the cross. So how is what Jesus is offering in this text as something solid to lean on in the midst of your trouble? How is his offering of comfort better than what the world might offer you during a season of trouble? During a season of trouble, why not just drink away the pain rather than come to Jesus? Why not soothe your trouble with a better job or more money or more fitness or holistic, organic, green living? Why not feel better about your soul in that way? Why not numb your soul with the pleasures of sexual sin? That'll help you forget. Why not join a self-help club? Why not binge on Netflix and just forget the pain for a little bit? Well, these things fall short of what Jesus offers because they offer temporary solutions to deep, deep problems. Each of these solutions underestimates how gigantic our trouble actually is. It's like trying to, trying to inject Novocaine into a tumor and expecting it to be healed. It won't work. You might numb a symptom, but you won't be fixing the actual problem. If you doubt that humanity is in a deep, deep hole. Just look on Twitter. If you doubt that our human solutions for world peace are effective, just watch the evening news. Whatever we try as human beings, over and over and over again, it doesn't work. At best, they're only temporary solutions to our trouble. At best, they're band-aids for cancer. So Jesus offers the cure, not just the band-aid. He says, cast your sights into the next life and your troubled soul in this life will begin to heal. Your present fruitfulness can explode if you just set your sights on Jesus' future forever faithfulness. He's preparing a room for you. Set your sights on that. Follow Jesus to his room for you. And in fact, following him to his father's place seems to be the whole whole point here. 
Jesus' provision for you is meant to deepen your affection for him in a way that you're compelled to follow him. So the second thing I want us to see here is that Jesus' person is the singular pathway to God. His person is the singular pathway to God. So no sooner has Jesus told these guys that he's going to go get a place ready for them in his father's house, than does Thomas pipe up in verse 5 and be like, great, Jesus. Uh, now, exactly, exactly where is your dad's place? <laughs> how, how, can you remind me how we get there again? Where is this? And Jesus answers, you're looking at him, Thomas. If you were to GPS the father's house, how to get to God, you'll only get one route, and it's through me. You won't find those alternative routes with similar ETAs. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So John 14, 6 is extraordinarily divisive, if you didn't know it already. It's very unpopular for our world today. It'll trip a lot of people up, and they won't want to go any further with Jesus because they think Jesus is just a bigot for excluding a whole bunch of really good people with their own interpretation about how they get to God. Those are the people with those coexist stickers on their cars. Cool sticker, false claim. Besides, there's a great degree of freedom and hope in Jesus' exclusive claims here. Think for a moment about what Jesus says. He says, first, I am the way. A way is a passage from one place to another. Or in this case here, it's from one person to another. So if you want to get from you to God, you've got to travel on the street to get there, on the way. And now this gets people all riled up, saying stuff like, Jesus is the only way to God. People don't want to hear that. But now listen, if you were in a house, and it was burning down to the ground, and there was only one available exit do you think that you'd be all bent out of shape about there being only one exit available? Now, I see that exit, but I'd rather take that other one that's shrouded in smoke and fire. In fact, this is ridiculous. This house is ridiculous. Who built this house with only one exit available? There should be other routes out of the house. No, if there's one exit out of the house, when it's burning down, you take it and you don't complain about it. You rejoice that there's an exit. Jesus is the way. But he says also that I am the truth, that he is the truth. He's also the truth. One plus one, kids in here, one plus one equals, I got, I got two. All right, one plus one equals two. And no one can tell you otherwise. If someone tries to tell you that one plus one equals 247, they're lying, that or they're confused, because that's false math. doesn't work. So Jesus is saying here, look, if you want to know what is truly true, you got to come to me. In, in terms of getting to God, he's the only one true way. Any other way is false. That's not narrow and bigoted any more than telling someone that one plus one equals two and not 247. It, it, it's no more bigoted than that. It's just true. And so there's so much hope in Jesus' claims here because he also claims to be the life. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So if oxygen is vital to our physical living right now, Jesus is even more vital to your spiritual life right now. He's so vital that it can be said that he is your very life. If you want to live, you're going to have to come through Jesus. If you want to live forever with God, you have to travel the pathway to get to God that he set out, and that's through Jesus. So Jesus says, I am the way. Without me, there is no going to God. 
I am the truth. Without me, there is no way of knowing God. I am the life. Without me, there is no way of living with and for God. Now, for those of us in here who have been Christians for a long time, which is probably the majority of us, we've probably long used this text as a sort of proof text for Jesus' exclusivity. Like, look, Jesus is the only way. See? It says it right here. I am the way, the truth, the life. And you're not wrong, but I want us to see the stories that Jesus is speaking these words into. He was speaking into situations where people were doubting themselves, doubting their worth, doubting their place with God. He was saying in such a gracious way, take your eyes off of you and put them on to me. Uproot the hopes that you've planted so deeply within yourself and plant them deeply within me. So I don't want us to miss the context here. It's really important. This is more than just a proof text, Christians. It should provide real comfort and real moments for anyone who has been rescued by Jesus. In this moment here, why should Thomas, why should Philip, why should Peter in John's hearts remain untroubled in the wake of the mess that they've just created and are going to create? Even in view of real fear, real abandonment, real shame. Look, we know this just from looking at the history books. For all of history, a troubled soul has always nipped at the heels of these kinds of emotion, of fear, abandonment, and shame. We glance back as, at what has produced those things, of fear, abandonment, and shame. And now we become troubled when we look back at those things. But here Jesus is saying, stop, stop. Don't be troubled. Fix your gaze on me. Look at me. Don't look at what's chasing you. Look at what's coming to you through me. I'm going, to, I'm going to build a place for you, creating a room just for you. Your sin does not mean that your place in God's house will be unavailable. The vacancy sign is still blinking. And if you haven't come into the Father's family today, I want to encourage you to come in the only way to get to God, through Jesus. You got questions about that? Ask people around you. They'd love to speak with you about that. The vacancy sign is still blinking, so Jesus is saying, let not your hearts be troubled. I am the way, not you. I'm the way. Our hearts can remain untroubled, or at least progressively become less troubled, because Jesus on this night went to purchase the forgiveness and become the way back to the Father. He paved the only path to God, and when he got there, he not only made our rooms available, but he tailor-made them for the sheep that he died for. So let not your hearts be troubled this morning. In those terrible moments, and if you're honest, we've probably all done this, and we should probably all commit to never doing this again, but in those terrible moments when you divert your attention away from the road to your text message, you begin to drift ever so slightly. Jesus here is saying, oh, 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 don't, don't take your eyes off of me. It was never going to be you that got you there anyway, guys. I am the way. Not you. Look here at me. It's more than a proof text. It's a comforting text. And as we transition to our final point today, Jesus wants us to know that there will be certain things that mark the landscape along the path to the Father through him. Jesus says, belief in me will, resort, will result in works for me. We kind of dipped our toes into this pretty deeply last week, so we won't go very long here but I do want to touch on at least a little bit of the controversy of the text here. 
The third thing that we see from the text is that Jesus promises compelling Christ-like fruit. He promises that we will bear compelling Christ-like fruit. And the first thing I want to ask here is, who is this promise made to? Look at verse 12 there. It's for anyone who believes. This promise wasn't just for the dudes that were sitting around the table with Jesus. It was to them and to everyone else since who has believed. So the work that Jesus calls, to, calls us to as Christians isn't for the hyper-committed Christians. We shouldn't think, oh, this is the stuff for the pastors, this is the stuff for the people who are all in, in it to win it, or the professional Christians, or the missionaries, or the evangelists, or the, or the men and women who are highly gifted. No, this text says, whoever believes in Jesus will do the works of Jesus. And it doesn't just say that we'll do what he does. Look at it. It's crazy. We'll do greater things even than he has done. What? This promise has long stumped Christians. I mean, what do you do with that? You got Jesus telling us that we're going to do greater stuff than even he did. Has anyone here found anyone that can turn water into wine? Because that is a business opportunity right there. Any bread multipliers in the building? If so, I have some ideas about feeding the poor in my family. Who's, who's walked on water recently? That would make you a decent chunk of change at Disney. No, what Jesus means cannot be that we do the same sorts of jaw-dropping things that he did. Only things that God can do. So, if the promise is made to everyone, anyone who believes, what does it actually mean? Well, I think we need to explore briefly the connection between the works that Jesus did and the belief that people had what Jesus did in the belief that people had. Look at the connection there between verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, he says, Believe me, or else at least believe on the account of the works themselves. So the word believe and works occur together in verse 11, just like they come together in verse 12. So Jesus' works are designed to aid our belief and also the disciples' belief. He says, Believe on, the account, on account of the works. If what I say isn't enough for you to convince you about who I am, look at what I've done. And that should do it. Let my works, paired with my words, lead you to faith. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 11. So let's let the function of Jesus' works in verse 11 shed light on the function of our works in verse 12 and following. Verse 12, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So if the function of the works is the same in both of these verses, with works functioning to lead people to faith in Jesus— then I think we can better understand the pretty outrageous claim that Jesus is making here. He says, greater works than these will you do. So I think what Jesus is saying here is that the works that we do to draw people to faith in Jesus, here it is, here's the payoff hopefully, the works that, that we do to draw people to faith in Jesus will be greater quantitatively, not qualitatively. Quantitatively, not qualitatively. So think about this. At the time of Jesus' ascension, he's been on the earth for... 30 plus years, there were probably a max of a couple hundred believers on the earth. But do you know what happened just a few weeks later at Pentecost? The gospel literally lit the world on fire. There's this text in Acts chapter 17 um, where the, the authorities of the day were blaming the Christians on turning the world upside down. This is kind of uh, the, the way that they began to be known in that part of the world during that time. Uh, and so you got Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, having, 30, uh, having 100 followers when he 
ascends to the Father. And then a few weeks later, there's more than 3,000 souls saved in a day. That's a far larger crop than Jesus experienced when he was on the earth. So I think what Jesus is promising here is that his followers would work in ways that would draw an unbelieving world to faith in his identity as the Son of God. Jesus will use you to do this, to be a part of the fulfillment of this promise. And next week, we're going to find out about how uh, from the, uh, in the second half of chapter 14. So I'm not sure about you, but if you're anything like me, you might feel that the comforts Jesus is offering in this text feel really far off. They might sound wonderful. A place in his house was made for us, but they seem so distant. Like, we're not going to get to actually tangibly put our hands on this until we die or until Jesus comes back. And so I don't, I don't know what that does for your, your current situation now. Maybe your soul is troubled because your kid's behavior is really concerning and you don't know what to do about it. Maybe your marriage is in a really fragile and unaffectionate place. Maybe your health is failing. Maybe you hate your job. Maybe you feel super lonely. Well, Jesus' future provision of a room in the Father's house, house can help now by assuring you that your place is secure. There's no sin great enough, no grief deep enough, no chasm wide enough to separate you from the love of the Father. Nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. And I think of all the texts that we've preached so far in John, at least between texts, this is the biggest cliffhanger between sermons. Because Jesus hasn't yet truly bridged the gap for his disciples between the now and future glory. There's one last piece of the puzzle from the second half of this chapter that will help us span the gap between his departure and his return. When he leaves, what are the disciples supposed to do? How are they supposed to keep going? How are we supposed to keep going? Come back next week and we'll find out. So when you are feeling troubled by the fear of the unknown, shame for sinning in that way again, or feeling abandoned by friends or family, maybe you're feeling abandoned by God, just know that Jesus has settled this world's biggest trouble at the cross. And if he's settled that trouble, he can handle yours. If you are in Christ, your room is reserved. It's safe because of Jesus alone. In fear, in abandonment, in shame, there is safety. There is plenty of room for troubled souls in the Father's house. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for making space for us. We do not deserve space in your place. But you made us our own room, and we're really thankful. I pray that this future hope would really ground us in whatever trouble we're facing this week, that we would know that we have a place with the Father, and that the joy of that future prospect would give us the strength to plow through what you have called us to do uh, in this week, in this month, this year. Lord, thank you for our place in the Father's house.